Let's bow together and pray, and then let's study God's Word. Father, we are grateful this morning for who you are, for your kindness to us, for your love, for your mercy, for your grace. And what we would ask you for this morning is for you to do mighty things in our midst. Would you show us your glory? Would you show us your goodness? We know that you have great things for us uh, in your word this day. We trust you. And we are thankful. We're thankful for the gospel that we talked about this morning. We're thankful for the fact that indeed you are our God. We are grateful for the salvation you've given us in Christ. And what we would ask you for this morning is that ability to see your glory, that ability to know you, that ability not to be distracted. God, you've got big things for us today. Please show us your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever noticed that for many people, and this may be true for you, by the way, but for many people, all religion is summed up in the King james phrase, thou shalt not. It seems that for many people, all that Christianity is about is an ever-growing list of things that people are not allowed to do. Does this sound like anything you guys are familiar with? I'm not the only one who, who's experienced this. I've heard Christians give long lectures on why we ought not drink alcohol or why we ought not go to restaurants where alcohol might be served or why we ought not smoke or why we ought not dance, which many ought not do for the simple fact that they can't, (laughs) why we ought not listen to any music with a syncopated rhythm. I was once given a whole like multiple cassette study series on why anything with a backbeat was from the devil. True? No, no, it's not true that anything with a backbeat is from the devil, but I was given that set for real. Uh, Why we ought not gamble, why we ought not play or own cards because it might tempt us to gamble, why we ought not watch movies rated R or perhaps even PG-13, and why women ought not wear makeup, which I suppose went for the men too. So, the whole point here, though, is I have heard, and I'm guessing that you have heard, if you've been around the church much of your life, a lot of rules about what not to do. Even in the last couple messages, we saw a lot of ways in which God has told us no. And you know what? Let's be careful before we get too far down this line. God's right when God tells us no. When God tells us not to do something, he has every right to tell us that. And and here's something I want to just mention as a quick pet peeve of mine. You don't have to understand why. Uh, I've got friends who will give you mountains of reasons as to why. Well, when God forbade this, he was thinking this, this, or this. And that's all well and good. But if God said no, it's the divine because I said so. And that's enough for me. 
When God tells us no, it's okay. A reality is, part of following God is to refuse to participate in actions or develop attitudes that dishonor God. And so, in verse 5 of Colossians 3, when God told us to put to death in ourselves sins that start with selfish greed and lead all the way down the line to sexual immorality, God was right. And when God told us in verse 8 to take off like dirty clothes the sins that start with anger and end with us hurting each other in the church, God was right. And when God commanded us in verse 9 not to lie to each other because lying looks more like the devil than like God, God was right. And when God told us in verse 11 to get rid of all sorts of ethnic prejudices and class systems because Christ has united us in himself, God was right. And the illustration we used last week for the concept of stopping the things in our lives that dishonor God was this. Once you've taken a shower, once you've cleaned up, you don't go back and put your dirty clothes back on, right? But for the most part, once we've taken a shower, we do put something on, right? Just go with yes, please just say yes to that one no matter what. (laughs) I'm even okay with you lying if you say yes to that one. I just, I just don't, yeah, okay. So, we put clothes on. We put clean clothes on. God never called you. God never called you to empty your life. God did not call you to be a blank slate. Nor are we called to be against the bad things and for nothing. We're called to reflect the character and glory of the God who made us, who loves us, and who rescues every single person who comes to him in faith. So this morning, we're going to begin to look at this brief section of commands in this passage. This brief section that call us to put on the things that will honor Christ. The beginning of verse 12 says that, doesn't it? Put on! And it starts to show you how to dress spiritually so as to more look like what God wants you to look like. Now, if you are an outline maker, note taker, making an outline, there will be two main points, but there will be several sub points under the main point. So don't think two points short sermon. If you're not an outline maker, if you're not a note taker, that's okay. Just follow along and let's see what God wants us to put on because here's the point. Put on Christ. Point number one, remember your identity in Christ. Remember your identity in Christ. That's the main point of point one. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. All right. I want you to do a little mental exercise right now. I don't want you to think too much about this. I want you to be ready to give me the first thing that comes into your mind, okay? I want you to take note of your first reaction, your first response. I want you to imagine that God is looking at you right now. And that he's doing it with a human face, the face of Christ. Here's the question. What is the look on his face when he sees you? For so many of us, This question is frightening. We fear that God looks at us and is saddened by what he sees. 
After all, we never live up to his standard of perfection. We fail to do the good things that we're supposed to do. We fail to love our spouses, to raise our kids, to respect our authorities the way that he wants. We lose our tempers. We say nasty things. We shade the truth. We make bad choices. We fear that we are disappointments to God. We fear that he sees us. And we fear that what he sees is something ugly. We fear that a frown creases his brow as he sees us in our failure. Now the real question is, who are you? Have you ever taken time to ask yourself that question? Who are you in the sight of God? What does God call you? What does the one whose opinion really matters say about you? What he really thinks is what actually determines what look he would have on his face when he sees you. So today we're going to let Scripture speak. We're going to let the words of God speak to us. And the word of God here is amazing. Before we get the commands for what we're supposed to clothe ourselves in, he identifies for us who we are in Christ. And that's why this verse begins, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. There are three things that God says about those who are his, and they are beautiful. He calls us, those who know him, chosen, holy, beloved. Now, before we see who we are, let's remember who we were. Before coming to faith in Jesus, we were sinners. Before coming to Jesus, we had rebelled against God and earned for ourselves the judgment of God. Back in Colossians 1, verse 21, earlier in the letter that we're still studying, Paul said about us, we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That is a bad picture. That picture gets painted even more vividly by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, before we see the beautiful picture, we do need to acknowledge we're guilty enough to deserve God's frown in judgment. You agree with that? We have sinned. We deserve His wrath. But God took action. God chose to provide a means of our rescue and our restoration. God sent Jesus. And when he sent Jesus, he sent Jesus to accomplish a couple major things. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God's commands. And he offers that perfect record to us as a gift. Jesus also died as an atoning sacrifice, taking our punishment in our stead. And for any person who will place their trust in Jesus and submit their lives to his lordship, God says we are forgiven, we are rescued. 
Now listen again. In fact, you can look at Colossians 1 if you want to. As God describes what has happened to those who came to faith in Jesus. In Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14, we see this. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I like that description better than the others, don't you? Or look at 21 and 22. You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. These are beautiful descriptions. These are true of everyone who's turned from their sin and trusted their soul to God by believing in and resting in the person and work of Jesus. So I ask you this question this morning. Have you been rescued? If you've been rescued by Jesus, back to Colossians 3, back to verse 12. If you've been rescued by Jesus, Paul says of you that when God sees you, he calls you three things, which are our subpoints: Chosen, Holy, beloved. First subpoint: the word chosen. You know that word means exactly what it sounds like? Don't you love it when the Bible does that? You get a word and it means what it says? For everyone who's ever put their faith in Jesus, the Bible is clear that before we did so, God had actually already chosen to rescue us. It's the biblical doctrine of election, predestination. And it's well beyond what we can cover this morning to fully explain all the arguments for and implications of predestination. But here's what I want us to see from this text. If you're in Christ, you're there, not firstly because you did something right, but because God chose you. John 15, 16, the first part of that verse says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. In Ephesians 1, 3-6, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. How about 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Listen to this. God 
who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Christians, please understand this truth. God, before the ages began, before he ever created the world, chose his children. God chose that before the first human sin had ever occurred, he would send his son to rescue for himself a people. And if you're a believer, you're chosen by God and you were chosen by God before the stars were formed. Now, does this mean that God looked down the corridors of time and he just watched and he saw in you and me something special, something that we would do that would make him choose us and not others? No way. No way. If that were true, we could brag, couldn't we? Man, because of my right thinking, because of my right actions, because of my good choices... I have earned for myself a place in the family of God and other people just weren't smart enough. Can I tell you as an aside, I've actually heard that said. I actually heard once a deacon in a church say, I just can't see why anybody would be so dumb as to not come to Jesus. And I said, so are you saying that you're smarter than people who are lost? He said, I must be. That's terrifying. Terrifying. Because that's not at all what God says about us. We earned nothing but the wrath of God. God is clear from all that we've ever seen in his word that we were like the rest of mankind, dead in sins, rebels, children of wrath. So how did God choose us? I don't know. He doesn't tell you that. God, for God's own reasons and for God's own glory, chose to rescue a people for himself. He chose to make us his. He chose to bring us to Jesus. He chose to give us our faith in Christ as a gift. So from start to finish, God is responsible for our salvation. He gets all the glory. He gets all the credit for the fact that we're saved. We get all the benefits. So Christian, Christian, when God sees you, when God looks at you, he says, chosen. If you're in Christ, God had already chosen you. And can I tell you something? God does not look at his chosen with a frown or with disappointment. You know why? He knew whom he was choosing. He knew you inside and out. He knew your weaknesses. He knew your failures. He knew the mistakes you would make. He still knows the mistakes you're going to make. He knew your rebellion. He chose by his grace to make you his child. 
He chose to show the universe how loving and gracious he is. And he chose to do it by rescuing you and calling you his. Chosen. Next, God calls you holy. That's a word that means set apart. It means special. It means different. R.C. Sproul says it means a cut above the rest. Holy is the only word that God applies to himself in a three-time repetition in the Bible. In like Revelation 4, 8, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Right? The Bible never says God is love, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. But it does say he's holy, holy, holy. To be holy is to be perfect. To be holy is to have the perfection that you have set you apart from what is ordinary. God is holy. And get this. Let it blow your mind. When God looks at Christians, He says we are holy. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Let me ask you. How much of how you actually live would make God say holy? My guess is it's not very much, truthfully. Because while it is true that you and I will progressively live differently than we used to, I hope you're getting better. It's a hard thing for any one of us who is honest to argue that our lives are holy. While we'll try, while we'll work, while we'll do our best From time to time, we'll do our best. Sometimes we do our least. It's awful hard to pretend we're holy on our own. So we understand that just as God chose us, He also has gifted us with the holiness that is His and not ours. Our holiness is outside of us. It's outside of our actions. Holiness is what the Bible, what what theologians would call imputed to us. It's imputed to us. It's a theological term that means that God looks at you and counts you as if you are holy, even though we've never lived that holiness out. Say, Travis, is that anywhere in the Bible? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the picture in that verse is a trade. God swapped our sinful lives for Jesus' perfect one. Jesus suffered and died as the Father counted him as guilty of our sin. Did Jesus sin? No. But God counted it as if Jesus were guilty of our sin and punished Jesus for that sin so our sin could be perfectly and justly punished. In return, God credits us with the perfect life of Jesus, the righteousness of God. So if you've entrusted your soul to Jesus, God looks at you, sees the life of Jesus imputed to you, and says, Holy. I don't feel like you're surprised enough by this. Finally, God calls us beloved. 
What a word. To be beloved is to be the object of another's love. Though you and I fear that God is sad when he sees us, God looks at us and sees us as his beloved. Christian, God loves you. Stop. Listen. Hear this. God actually loves you. He doesn't look at you with sorrow. He's not mad at you. He loves you, treasures you, and is eternally committed to your good. This means that when all is said and done, He will continue to transform you into the image of His Son so that He can do you ultimate good. He will bring Himself glory as He forgives you and as He sanctifies you. He will show us His glory, which is going to give us the ultimate good we could ever have, the good for which we were created. If you are in Christ, God looks at you and says, Beloved. Christians, remember your identity in Christ. If you have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, God calls you His chosen, holy, and beloved. That's how God sees you. Let that impact how you understand grace. Let that impact how you rest in grace. And let it impact how you respond to the commands of God. And my goodness... Let it fuel thanksgiving. And if you haven't responded to Jesus by turning from your sin, believing in Him, asking to be forgiven, today would be a really great day for you to come to Him because He promises He will rescue all who come to Him. Everyone who comes to Jesus is no longer under the wrath and judgment of God. Instead, everyone who comes to Jesus finds out that they were already chosen by God and are called His holy ones and His beloved. You want that to be true of you. Now let's stop for a second. Does this sound too good to be true? Does it sound like we're getting just a little too fuzzy and lovey here? (laughs) We're reformed. We're not supposed to be this happy about grace. Some folks treat it that way, by the way. To many people, to many people, there's a fear that if we talk about this love of God in this much unguarded way, in in these unguarded terms... What's the fear? Well, we're going to make people lawless. Be honest, has that, has that kind of just sort of niggled at the back of your brain? This might be just too much love, Pastor. Many people would argue, if you make the love of God look this lavish, people are going to stop repenting of their sin. Do you realize, Christians... Do you realize that those kinds of objections are the very objections that people used to raise against the Apostle Paul in his ministry? Listen to some verses. Listen to some verses. Romans 3.8, Paul says this, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. What's Paul telling you? Paul's telling you, that there were people that used to accuse him of saying, well, I should just go ahead and be evil so that good will come out of it. Now, did Paul ever say that? Of course not. 
But that's the accusation, that's the false accusation raised against Paul. Or Romans 6, 1 and 2, another false accusation raised against Paul. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So see, people used to accuse Paul of being too gracious. They argued that his focus on grace would lead people into lawlessness. Side note, if nobody ever accuses you of being too gracious, if nobody ever accuses you, your gospel, of being something that could lead people toward lawlessness, you're not preaching the same gospel Paul did. Paul knew that the only way to present the truth of Christ is to show that grace is amazing, vast, and free. Then once we understand grace, once we understand grace, then we get pointed toward obedience to the commands of God. See, the motivation for obedience is never to earn the grace of God. You don't obey to earn favor. You don't, you don't, you don't. The motivation to obey the commands of God is the joy of living out what God already says is true of you. That's the whole thought behind the next point, by the way. Let's get our big point number two. Point two this morning. Put on Christ-like attributes. Put on Christ-like attributes. Read verse 12 one more time for you. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So keep in mind the illustration we've been using, right? Cleansed by Jesus. We've been washed. We've taken off. We are taking off all those dirty clothes, those filthy things from verses 5 through 11. And now we are supposed to dress ourselves in a set of attributes. And these attributes, they look like Jesus. Let's look at this list. It's another list of five. Isn't that interesting how many lists of five we've gotten here? Paul likes lists. We're going to look at this list of five here today. And then when we return to the Colossians study after Christmas time, Lord willing... We'll continue to see how to put on Jesus. So, here we go. God commands first that we put on compassionate hearts. If you've been chosen and rescued by God, first sub-point, compassionate hearts, by the way, the first thing God tells you to put on is a heart of compassion. You should feel tenderness, especially toward people who are hurting or people who are needy. And this is really, really important inside the church, as we saw in last week's message. We, people with compassionate hearts, hurt for those who hurt. They, they long for the growth and the spiritual health and the good of others. If you want to know what a compassionate heart is, compare it to its opposite. The opposite is to be unfeeling and uncaring. You're supposed to put on a heart that feels. Second, in the list, second subpoint here, kindness. Dress yourself in kindness. We know what this is. This isn't hard. To be kind is to be gentle when you could be harsh, to be giving when you could be stingy, to, to be sweet when you could be bitter. What's the opposite of kindness? Unkindness. Meanness, right? Put on kindness. Compassionate hearts, kindness. Humility, third. In the first century, humility was not a 
valued trait, by the way. The Greeks made fun of people who prized humility. But in the scriptures, we find that being humble is a very high mark. Humility is the opposite of what is so often taught in the modern self-esteem culture. A humble person will have a rightly low view of himself or herself. You know why? Because we're not good in ourselves. Any goodness we have comes to us as a gift from God. So to be humble doesn't mean you put yourself down and beat yourself up. It just means you make much of God. Instead of showing the world how great you are, the humble person will show the world how great God is. What's the opposite? Arrogance, right? Self-centeredness. Look at me. The word for meekness, that fourth one, Put on meekness. Sometimes it's translated gentleness. Like kindness, it, it means to answer softly. It's to be nice when you feel like you have the right to be rough and mean. Now, meekness or gentleness is not weakness. Because don't you know, don't you know that it often requires a lot more strength to be gentle in a difficult situation? How many of you are the kind of people that talk to other cars through your windshield? (laughs) By the way, they can't hear you. And you better hope they can't hear you. It takes a lot more strength not to shout and have a fit when things get ugly. You know what meekness is? Meekness is power under control. The picture is always one of a war horse that's been harnessed. What's the opposite? To be out of control. To let yourself be unrestrained in your actions, especially in your anger. Fifth thing. What about patience? Patience. Patience is the opposite of quickly flying off the handle. It's, it's to restrain your wrath. It is to endure. It is to hang in there. It is to lovingly put up with the struggles and failings of others. Impatience, snappishness, giving up on others, that's the opposite of patience. Now, let me ask you all, does that list have anything surprising in it, or does that sound like everything we've always seen through all of the New Testament? Does it just look like the New Testament to you? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek. Why? They'll inherit the earth, right? Think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Just, it's all there, isn't it? But you know what else is true of these attributes? You know what else is true of that list of five? They look like Jesus. Don't they look like Jesus? How compassionate is the heart of the Savior? Think about this. John chapter 6, actually every gospel has this story. John chapter 6, Jesus is given the news that John the Baptist has been murdered by King Herod. 
And you know what Jesus decides to do when he gets the news that John the Baptist has been murdered? He decides to take his disciples and go to a quiet place. He wants a little retreat, a little downtime, a little alone time, because this is sad. And you know what? A crowd of 5,000 plus finds him when he's trying to have a vacation. You know what Jesus does? He has compassion on them, and he teaches them, and he heals them all day long. How kind was Jesus? Think about the wedding in John chapter 2. The family at the wedding reception runs out of wine. This was a big problem in their culture. Not only does Jesus get wine, like he doesn't run down to 7-Eleven and buy something in in like a cardboard carton, right? (laughs) Jesus made somewhere around 200 gallons of the finest wine imaginable. That was kindness. By the way, we think the look was on his face when he did that. Don't you just see Jesus with a grin going, this is fun. (laughs) When Jesus is watching the guys go dip, I know I poured water in here, put their little scoop in, pull it out, and it's wine, and it's good wine. That had to be fun. I'm sorry, it just did. And I can't picture Jesus being all somber going, yes, that's why. (laughs) There had to be a glint, like a gleam in his eye, right? And a grin, because this is good. That's Jesus. What about humility and meekness? Does that look like Jesus? In Luke chapter 2, Jesus lived in submission to Joseph and Mary. Jesus was God on earth. And he willingly submitted to flawed human beings for the sake of the glory of God. Time after time in his life, Jesus had the power to crush people who opposed him. But he willingly suffered their abuse for the sake of rescuing the children of God. Jesus was humble. Jesus was meek. Jesus had power under control. How patient is Jesus? He keeps us. We fail. We make foolish choices. We rebel. He forgives. He doesn't get frustrated with us. He doesn't smack us around. He's patient. Christians, the command of God is for you and for me to live out our new identity in Christ. And we're supposed to take off the filthy rags of our old sinful lives. We are made clean by Christ. And so we're supposed to dress ourselves in the things that make us look like Jesus. And so I would urge you to put on Christ-like attributes. That's this point. Look over the list of five things that are right here and ask yourself, do these mark my life? If they do, great, keep it up. If they're not that much a part of your life, Ask yourself, how can I better, by the help of the Spirit of God, by the help of others in this church, how can I make these things a part of my life? Because these should be a focus of my prayer, and these should be the focus of our effort. This morning, God's had a lot to say to us. And this is... What he said to you this morning is going to be different depending on where you stand before him. If you need God's mercy, if you need God's forgiveness, come to Jesus and ask him for mercy. Turn away from sin, 
Ask him to be forgiven and he will forgive you. If you need to know how to do that, please come talk to me afterwards. I will help you. But if you're here and you're a believer this morning, God says, remember your identity in Christ. He calls you chosen. He calls you holy. He calls you beloved. So don't question his inspired word. God has the authority to call you whatever he wants to call you. And if you're a Christian, he calls you chosen, holy, and beloved. Live with it. But God doesn't just call us to a grace devoid of obedience. He calls us to put on the attributes of Jesus. He calls us to live out the truth of what he has called us. He calls us to look like Jesus in our compassion, in our kindness, in our humility, in our meekness, and in our patience. So let's do those things for his glory. Would you bow with me and pray? Lord God, I'm so grateful for this word today. I'm grateful for what you call me and what you call me to. And I would ask you this morning that you would help us to respond. Even as we're praying, even as we bow, There are people that need to be convinced that you actually love them and that it's not based on their performance. Your word is true. So if we are in Christ, we are chosen, holy, and beloved. Convince us of that. There are people who need to know you. Show them that this is what they want to be. There are people who need to obey you and put on Christ-like attributes. Help us do it. And let us wrap it all up with thanks to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing.